This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Gist is an independent podcast. You know that. You value that. That's why you listen. And we are going to remain independent no matter what. But independence is worth it, but also comes at a cost. So we have a subscription service. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to get The Gist ad-free or to get bonus episodes of Interviews of the Gist and a Trivia Night. There's also a level where you can commission a spiel as if you were a doge in Italy or a raj or anything that ends in a just sound in one of the nations of the world where you commission humble artists to do your bidding. It's all available at subscribe.mikepesca.com. Consider it planting a flag for the very spirit of independence. It's Thursday, June 22nd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. As I was reporting yesterday, the Supreme Court thus far has not issued any 6-3 decisions. I mean, they've issued a few 6-3 decisions. It's just that the 6-3 decisions that they've issued haven't broken down with the six conservatives aligning against the three liberals. But it happened. It happened today. In fact, today, although the most important cases of the term were not decided, there were a few 6-3 decisions. Only one of them, however, was six conservatives against three liberals. And the case in question was Jones v. Hendricks. And you can see why the three liberals would vote the way they did. There's a fella. He's sitting in prison. Marcus D'Angelo Jones. He's there on a gun charge. And a few years ago, the Supreme Court rules that circumstances around his gun charge are such that he shouldn't be in prison. So, in fact, he was innocent. To underline just how, in fact, he was innocent... A couple times in oral arguments, they didn't just say that he was factually innocent. They didn't just amend that or clarify that by saying he was factually innocent. They went so far as to add another adjective, a rhyming one, actual factual innocence. And Justice Jackson was asking, can I clarify what you mean by actual factual innocence? It means to cut through a lot of argle-bargle. It means the guy was innocent. Even the Supreme Court said, yes, this guy should not be in jail for the crime he was said to have committed. However, the question was, just because he was innocent, factually innocent, actually factually innocent, does that mean this fellow gets out of jail? It, in fact, does not mean that. The six conservatives said, well, you know, we can't allow appeals forever. And even though this guy is in jail and shouldn't be, what are we going to let him appeal and appeal and appeal and appeal? He had his appeal. It was a case that was not at all appealing to the three. And I should mention, and I do mention this. In fact, I'm doing it right now. You're inside of it. It was the first time that we saw the 6-3 conservative versus liberal dynamic at play. By the way, Jones v. Hendricks could have described time when Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones sat in with the Jimi Hendrix experience playing drums on the cover of All Along the Watchtower. Did you know that happened? Did you know that Jimi Hendrix, Brian Jones, and John Lennon were supposedly on the brink of forming a supergroup? That's what happens when 27-year-olds die early. Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, and our poor friend Marcus D'Angelo Jones not getting any stays of execution. On the show today, I spiel about meat, I spiel about bread, I bring it all together in a sandwich of intellect and delight. 
But first, Alison Bechdel is a cartoonist whose graphic novel Fun Home was turned into an award-winning musical. But today she joins us to talk about adapting her long-running comic series, Dykes to Watch Out For, into an Audible original series. I checked. I got all the permissions. I, sh- I don't have it on tape. I can't prove it. But Allison allowed me to say the name of her comic series and the name of the Audible series. It is Dykes to Watch Out For. I'm not going to say it too often, but you got to know what the name of the series is. Allison Bechtel tests me. Oh, why would I use that phrase? You'll find out. And you also find out how one adapts a comic into an audio series. Alison Bechdel, up next. Alison Bechtel is a cartoonist, a graphic novelist, the author of the source material for the Tony Award-winning musical Fun Home, MacArthur Genius Grant winner. Now, you notice that I'm doing the ladder of achievement. The achievements are going up and up and up, and now we get to the top. She is the author of a new Audible series. That's right, an audio series. She's reached the pinnacle. It's based on the strip that started it all, Dykes to Watch Out For, which was... I think maybe, she'll tell me if this is true, uh, it's been described as something of the first ongoing depiction of lesbians living their lives, which was available to the mass public. Many people, younger than Allison, cited as their first or only sustained look at lesbian characters that they had access to as young people or even as not so young people. Now, Dykes to Watch Out For has been turned, like I said, into an Audible series. Carrie Brownstein plays Mo, the main character. Jane Lynch narrates. A cast of thousands contributes. Allison, welcome to The Gist. Thank you, Mike. Very happy to be here. So I know Fun Home was adopted for the stage, but with this one, were you holding out for a rock opera? (laughs) (laughs) This really came out of the blue. I had no idea that it was even possible to turn a comic strip into an audio series, Uh, but apparently it is. I've seen some of the 400 million audio series. I think you could turn anything into an audio series. But this is a well-done audio series. And I think something about the comic strip lent itself to that. Did that, did you come to realize that as you listened to the product? Uh, Well, first I want to say I didn't write this adaptation. Uh, Madeline George is a playwright and she took the original source material, the comic strips from 1980 seven and worked them into these episodes, these, you know, half hour, 20, 30 minute long scenes. Um, but she used a lot of the original material somehow. She, she made them into these rich stories, but kept a lot of the actual lines and language from the early strips, which is kind of amazing to me. I don't know how she did that. But um, my point is the comic strip is mostly dialogue. You know, it's It's kind of just like a ready-made script in a way. Uh, And so instead of having visuals, now we have sound effects, which are pretty compelling and do, you know, so much to flesh out this world that the characters live in. It's really, it's wild. 
Right. So when you said you you didn't even know it could be adopted, that surprised me a little bit because it is in a way the most um, adaptable from this format to another because of the dialogue. When you do a graphic novel, there's a lot of internal dialogue or there can be a lot of narrative, much less of that in Dykes to watch out for. And what narrative there is, it's such a joy to give it to Jane Lynch, <laughs> which brings me to, <laughs> right? Which brings me to the question. So you're coming across stuff that you wrote, you know, 30 years ago. Did some of it, did sometimes your actual, I don't know how often you would go back and read the strips, did on occasion your actual words surprise you or make you laugh? There are a few things I I would certainly write differently now, but honestly, not that many real problems, you know, the way that it's so much of our culture just doesn't age well these days. Um, but the the comic strip does pretty pretty well. And no, I actually meant on the upside. Like, oh yeah, that's funny. Wait a minute, I wrote that. Oh. But you can't <laughs> you can't laugh at something if you know it's coming. So it would have to have a little bit of the element of surprise. <laughs> well, I Madeline made the strip much funnier, I think, than it actually was originally. But there's it's very funny. This this product is just really well done. I'm sorry. I know I'm like promoting it. And I have to say that, but I'm really surprised at how well it came out. <laughs> yeah. I saw on Amazon, on uh, Audible, the first five-star review was from you. I don't know if that was ethical. But... <laughs> <laughs> How'd you develop your drawing technique or style for Dykes to watch out for? You know, I, I, I don't have a style. All I do is draw as well as I can. Uh, and over the years, um, I've seen my drawing get better and better and now sort of level off and start to disintegrate a bit as I get older and can't see the line I'm drawing as well. But I, I've never been one of those cartoonists who was so good that they could draw in different styles. And maybe, maybe I'm full of shit, you know, I, cause I, when I look at Dykes to Watch Out for, it does look different from my other graphic work, from my graphic memoirs. Um, but, in any case, I just always feel like I'm just drawing as as good as I can, and I can't fake anything. I can't do a different look. But I have read, is this true? But for Fun Home, you took photographs and, and even yourself donned uh, costumes, I guess, and posed in the uh, in in the poses that you wanted to depict your characters. And so you drew off those photographs. That is true, and and but that was a. Uh, more a function of the evolution of digital photography, which came around just at the time I was working on that book. And I learned that, oh, I can get really easy reference shots. In the past, I would use Polaroids sometimes because they were so expensive. I would use them quite sparingly. But for a complicated scene with multiple people, sometimes I'd use Polaroids uh, to look at. Or I had these, they used to sell these books of models doing poses of things like holding a coffee cup or taking a bill out of a wallet, like, you know, now you don't need that, but it was amazing the resources there used to be for visual research. Um, But I got really uh, seduced by digital photography and how quick and easy it was to pretty much stage whatever I wanted to draw. And I became very reliant on that. I guess I still am. Did that change, do you think, did that change the effect on the reader? Um, it seems, because here's my observation, it seems Dykes to watch out for 
is mostly in the comedic vein. And it seems that Fun Fun Home had lots of elements of that, but I don't know if it was mostly in the comedic vein. And it does seem in some way to be a reflection of how uh, realistic, I guess the word would be, the depiction of the characters were. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, the, the Dykes characters are quite cartoony. And when I'm drawing my family, there is more realism. And the drawing in general has more photorealism because of this increased reliance on photography as a tool. But yeah, it, it does affect the tone. And I think the, you know, the relationship with the reader, like what genre are you engaging with? A, you know, a silly sitcom or, a you know, something more serious. So I guess the drawing, there are different styles, but I, I shouldn't think of them that way. When you would draw, say, a crowd scene, like let's say a pride oh, march. crowd scenes. Oh my God. Okay. So there's a, there's a pride march. There's actually an opportunity to do funny signs in the background, but lots of people. So in Dykeshoe to watch out for, so maybe, you know, you were drawing those in 1987 or something. How would you, how would you pull that off? Uh, I would, I would just make it up, you know, I <laughs> yeah. mean, certainly, I, or, or, you know, I, I saved newspapers and magazines. I had my own little visual archive. So when I found an interesting crowd shot, I would save it or, and I was just always scanning for anything worth drawing or including in my comic strip, like a funny placard at a march. So I had this like visual data bank in my head and also my, my files. I don't keep those anymore. It's so funny. I used to have just like my own files of all these different references. Right. So during the strip, before we started recording proper, you told me that the character, the, who I consider the main character, who is a stand-in for you, who is uh, certainly Mo in the audio series, but that main character and the avatar of Allison changed. What occasioned that? Who did be, could it become and why? Well, I, I wasn't really aware of it until after it had happened, but um, I introduced a new character in 1995 after I'd been doing the strip for about 12 years. So about halfway through the run of the strip, I introduced Sydney, the evil women's studies professor. And she was this very jaded, uh, worldly, kind of over it all character um, who Mo eventually got into a relationship with. And one day I realized, oh, my God, I've like, I've become Sydney. Like the strip used to be based on Mo's sensibilities, this, you know, quite earnest young cultural worker. And now, uh, you know, after doing it for many years and just uh, getting a little disillusioned, I guess, myself with what was happening in queer life, um, Sydney was kind of my new, I just realized I had turned into this different character. What a, Maybe there were other things going on in your life or with the strip that allowed for that transition. For instance, Mo never had a job, right? She was chronically unemployed. And then, and you didn't, weren't able, tell me if this is right, for the first few years, you weren't able to be a full-time cartoonist. It didn't pay the bills, right? No, no, yeah, I did this just for fun. I mean, Mo, Mo did get a job very early on in the strip at the bookstore. So she only, she only was unemployed for a yeah. brief period. but. Yeah, I mean, writing a, a lesbian comic strip was not a, you know, great career path. No. It's not the cash cow it is today. Yeah. yeah. I did it for fun <laughs> uh, for years. I And then I started making a little bit of money off of it by self-syndicating it to 
these gay and lesbian newspapers that just happened to be contemporaneously starting up around the country. Um, and the strip very much grew, evolved in uh, sync with those newspapers. Here was this market. Even the physical form of the comic strip came to fill these biweekly tabloid pages. Like that determined, you know, how much of a story I could tell. When did you first become aware of how influential the strip was? Not just that you had fans, but you had maybe fans of a younger generation who were using it other than just, you know, a funny, a funny 20 minutes or five minutes in their day. It was after Fun Home came out when people, when my profile just sort of got raised and I, people had heard of me outside of the gay and lesbian subculture that I had mostly been working in, in my, that little cocoon. But also it was the, um, what started to happen with what is now called the Bechtel test. Um, yes. It's this, I did this, an episode of my comic strip way back in 1985, like eons ago, uh, that younger feminists somehow got a hold of. It's, it's called The Rule, and it's about two women trying to decide on what movie they're going to see. And one of them says, okay, I have three rules about movies. One, I can only see a movie if it's got at least two women in it. Two, those two women have to talk to each other. Three, about something besides a man. And this was something a friend of mine had told me in 1985, just the kind of conversation <laughs> lesbian feminists would have. We just thought that was funny. There's no way that I ever envisioned that as a real, you know, criterion or measurement. Uh, it was a joke. But somehow these young Younger feminists, after the internet enabled things to, you know, float around, uh, they latched onto that and, and started playing with it and really using it to look at movies or, or all kinds of narratives, you know, um, seriously to to gauge how whether whether they treated their female characters as full human beings. You brought the strip back in 2016. Uh, to comment on, among other things, Trump. How do you think, well, and that was before we saw his whole administration, January 6th, et cetera. How do you think your characters would deal with where we are now? Well, I'm, I'm starting to figure that out. Um, it, was, it was hard. I mean, I, I did bring them back for a few episodes just to, for my own sanity, like my own uh, therapeutic use, because <laughs> I was such a mess. Uh, after Trump's election. And I, was, I, al I always used the comic strip to make sense of what was going on in the world. Uh, and now I really needed to do that again. But um, I didn't really sustain it. We saw a few episodes and they're, they're just all hysterical. You know, they're all doing, they're themselves on steroids. You know, they're uh, organizing, they're building a bunker in the backyard. Um, but... What I'm doing right now is working with an extended narrative where <laughs> I'm, it's sort of a fake memoir where I'm a character in this story and my friends are are the Dykes characters. And so they're all in their 60s. They're the ones with kids. Uh, they've got kids in college. Um, everyone's non-binary. And I'm just, uh, you know, they're aging. They're They're living as we all are through this disintegrating republic um and it's been really nice to get back into their heads 
When when you say everyone's bi- non-binary, do you mean they're kids or they now identify as non-binary? Mostly, well, mostly the kids, but one one of the adults as well. I know you were writing it for an in-group, essentially. You're writing it for an audience, but that's who the audience was. Do you have any mixed feelings about people outside the community getting the insight? It could go a number of ways. I'm sure that a lot of it is how they take it. But I could also imagine there's the airing the dirty laundry argument. There's the this thing is ours. Now you're letting it out for everyone to know. There's even the I look, look at the title. Hey, I get to say that you don't. (laughs) Right, right. You know, it's interesting when I think about all of those things, they've shifted for me over the years. When I first began in my early 20s, in the early 1980s, I I had this glimmer, I, I, I really did that, wow, this, if I write about these funny, approachable human characters, that, that might win people over, <laughs> you know? Yes, I wanted to speak to people like me and show us a reflection of our lives, but I also had this little wish in the back of my head that um, this would somehow reach over that divide you know, and it never did. It didn't happen until about the time I quit writing the strip. That was how long it took, 25 years until 2008 when I ended the strip for for a, a critical mass of straight readers to really be willing to engage with that material, um, which was, you know, lovely when it happened, but it was a little late, but then for some reason, Mike, young people keep um, keep reading it. I'm always amazed by this, but you know, 20 year olds today are still like picking this up and reading it and finding it amusing. Uh, that so I expected it. You know, at a certain point, my audience was just going to age out, and uh, but it really hasn't happened, not yet. And what did you think of, so after the strip was done, then more lesbian content was allowed to be put out there and embraced. There was the L word, there was the next L word. Then there was, you know, you look at a show like Euphoria, it's just, it's not even an issue. It would be weird not to have all sorts of sexualities depicted. I'm sure as a a lesbian and as a person who is, you know, an advocate for your own community, thank God. But was there a part of you that was a little jealous? Oh, I've been jealous all along. You know, I I was jealous when Ellen, Ellen's TV show came along and Ellen came out. I I suddenly felt like, wow, this makes what I'm doing absolutely futile. Like who, who needs a comic strip when they can watch a real television sitcom about a lesbian? But then I realized that's not really true and I'm telling different kinds of stories in a different way, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I, it has been really interesting to me to watch what has happened in the culture and to see just this flood of, of queer shows and characters. Um, it's really different. It's a whole different landscape. I mean, of course, the whole media landscape is so different. There's so many different modalities and um I'm in, a, in a way I I'm old you know I'm in my 60s and I, I have this weird nostalgia for for the days when everyone was watching the same show <laughs> you know like it's great that there's all these different shows but where's the where's the critical mass of people watching any given one of them and I I, I feel like I've lost a sense of that 
Yeah. And this is from someone who never was that show or that comic strip that everyone's watching. You're still nostalgic for a time that essentially discriminated against your work. I know. I know. I mean, yeah, the stuff that everyone was watching was was homophobic and racist and misogynist, but at least everyone was watching it. <laughs> yeah. I think that, I don't know, is that more uh, Mo or the uh, angry yeah. <laughs> the angry post-feminist scholar? I don't know. I think it's the angry post-feminist scholar. <laughs> Alison Bechtel is the third ever cartoonist laureate of the state of Vermont. Her graphic memoir, Fun Home, became the Tony Award Best Musical in 2015. And now her important comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, is an audible original series with Jane Lynch, Carrie Brownstein, cast of thousands. Allison, great to talk to you. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. A few years ago, the meatless revolution was met with cheers on Wall Street. Now the bloom is off the faux T-bone, as Bloomberg reports. Quote, Unreal Food ended its pursuit of an eggless egg. Remastered Food stopped developing vegan bacon. The Meatless Farm halted its plant-based sausages. The great shakeout in the world's fake meat sector is here, and it's widening. Ah, yes, the meatless meat sector... Turns out to be all sizzle and no, not steak. This was not entirely unknown. For a time, the smart money was on Beyond Meat. But as of late 2022, the Wall Street Journal reported that investors had tired of being jerked around by pseudo-jerky. In November, Beyond said that the jerky had reduced the company's gross profit by nearly $6 million in the third quarter. By September 2022, Beyond's stock price hit a low. They are losing more and more money each quarter. They're amassing debt. They're sort of having a a run of bad luck. Wall Street clearly signaling that sham steaks or counterfeit cutlets are not going to cut it. We'll take to the moon promises of cryptocurrency, but no more crypto cuts of cows. Bloomberg reported that $7 billion in venture capital went to fake meat companies in 2021. That has dipped 85% to about a billion this year. Beyond Meat has seen its market value drop over 90% from its peak. Bloomberg offering a list of companies that have met their meatless demise. Unreal Food, Cows Gone Coconut, Sun Milk, Ocean Tastes, Noops. Those are all American companies from the UK. The Meatless Farm, Remastered Foods. Is Mark Ronson involved in that? From the EU, Update Foods and Plant Edit, and you know they're serious about it. There is no space between plant and edit. And China's Hey Meat, but meat is spelled M-A-E-T. In other words, it's fake meat. Hey Meat, hey, meet me at Tiananmen Square. No, don't. But just as American investors deal with the fear of the near steer, let's move beyond Beyond Meat and beyond our borders as well as we considered Canada, which is coming to terms with a price-fixing scandal over bread. Loblaw, which also owns Weston Bakery, has admitted it participated in what it calls industry-wide bread price fixing for 14 years. Canada Bread will pay a record $50 million Canadian fine over price fixing. The story first broke in 2017. Pete Buttigieg was actually incorrectly implicated. The investigation went on those seven years since, and now we have the other big Canadian bread distributor Loblaw Companies admitting that they participated 
in price fixing with Canada bread. It's a halva prosecution for investigators who looked into profits once reported as clean but turned out to be sourdough. So after all this time, the Canadians lobbed the long arm of the law at Lob Law to the tune of $50 million Canadian. Canada Bread is also sandwiched inside a corporate parent whose name is Grupo Bimbo. And it is a tough case. Most legal experts acknowledging that there is but a narrow window for Grupo Bimbo, else they'd be left in limbo. I'd say that either way, Canadian bread is toast. And I know you think my references are quite wry, but I can sense you're wishing I'd bag it. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. We should disclose that Peachfish Productions does have a marketing deal in affiliation with Grupo Bimbo's line of wine for children, Buon Vino Bambino. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening. Actually, I was going to stay in my office tonight and work on my law blog. Of course, the Bob blah 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 blog. <laughs> wow, you sir are a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>